The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it has been some time since we have returned to the Epistle to the Romans, uh, probably over a month. We did a special study of the birth narratives of Jesus Christ in anticipation of Christmas. But today we are returning to Paul's Epistle to the Romans and to the seventh chapter. So if you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, we're going to go ahead and read through uh, the first part of the chapter, maybe even the whole chapter might be easier to do it this way, and then we're going to come back and take a look at it in this class and probably in the next, the seventh chapter of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 7, again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may have a different version, but either way, you should be able to follow along pretty easily. Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Um, you can probably tell just by the reading of that chapter that this is a difficult section of the epistle to the Romans. 
C.S. Lewis once said that St. Paul was the greatest of all theologians, he said, but it appears to me that he writes sometimes rather badly. Um, Paul's argument here is an important one here in Romans chapter 7, but it can, if we don't take it apart piece by piece, seem somewhat confusing and some would even say convoluted. What is Paul doing here in this Romans chapter 7? What, what is he focusing on in this particular section of the epistle? Well, Paul is dealing primarily with the subject of the law. But it's a difficult subject. And what makes it difficult, I think, as much as anything, are the illustrations or the images that Paul uses. For example, he ends this chapter with an illustration or an image that we are all familiar with, this image of a man who is struggling in his own life struggling with sin. Um, the very things he wants to do are not the things that he does. And the very things that he hates, well, these are the things that he finds himself doing. And he gets to the end of himself and cries out in desperation, oh, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Now, if you're anything like me, you can certainly relate to this person. Because that's the story of all our lives. Well, we all have this struggle, this internal conflict within us, the desire to do good, the inability to carry it out. And eventually we come, if we're honest, to the end of ourselves. But what makes part of this illustration difficult is we wonder, is Paul just talking about every man or is he talking about himself? Because he speaks in the first person. He said, the very things I want to do, I do not do. And this has been an ongoing debate, incidentally, in the life of the church down through the centuries. Who is this man at the end of Romans chapter 7? Is it just, you know, an illustration that Paul is using? Or is Paul speaking autobiographically? And what's more, if Paul is speaking autobiographically, at which point in his life is Paul speaking? Is this Paul struggling with sin prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus? Or is this Paul struggling with sin post-conversion? And if it's Paul post-conversion, is this Paul before he has learned the secret to victory over the power of sin? Well, we'll get to that when we get to that section. But already you can see that there are strong debates and strong views throughout the centuries as to what Paul is doing here. And it's not just that illustration that is difficult, it's also the illustration that he uses prior to that, this illustration of a person's relationship to the law. He says, our relationship to the law is like a woman who is married to her husband. As long as he is living, she is bound to him. But when he dies, she is no longer bound to him, she is free. Now, if you take that, as a strict analogy, or allegory even, then who is the law in that illustration? Well, the law is the husband. A woman is bound to her husband in the same way that we are bound to the law until what? Her husband dies. Well, that's an odd illustration to use. We can understand Paul's point, and we'll unpack it in a minute, but it's an odd illustration to use because... In this particular illustration, it's the husband that dies. In other words, it's the law that dies, not the wife that dies. And we all know that the law doesn't die. The law goes on. So this has led some people to say that this is one of the most confusing and, as I said, one of the most convoluted chapters in all of the epistle to the Romans. This, of course, is the greatest and weightiest of all of Paul's epistles, but some have said this is the densest part. This, this is a difficult... The message is not that difficult, but the illustrations, the images that Paul uses for it are very difficult indeed. Well, I hopefully I'm going to bring a little bit of light where there seems to be a great deal of gloom in Romans chapter 7 today. And what I want you to understand as we begin this particular section, and it is an important section of the epistle, that what Paul is primarily concerned here with is the whole place of the law in the life of the Christian. The place of the law in the life of the Christian. Now, when I say the law, I'm not just talking about law in general, but specifically the law of God. What is the place of God's law, his commandments in your life and mine? 
What, what kind of binding influence does it have on you and me? Or indeed, does it have any kind of binding influence on you and me? It's interesting, Paul mentions the expression, the law, or the written code, or the commandment, 14 times in the first 14 verses of this chapter. That's how we know that's what it's really all about. He is obsessed with this whole issue of the law and the place of the law in the Christian life. Now, this is nothing new. Paul is not introducing a new idea or a new concept here. He's been talking about the law all along. Remember, the epistle to the Romans is about how a person who is under the wrath of God comes into a right relationship with God and maintains a right relationship with God. How we are justified. We talked about what it means to be justified. That is a legal, it's a forensic term, but what it basically means is to be lined up with God. And I've said the best illustration that I know to to help you understand what justified means, is to take a look at your text in your Bible right there. You'll notice that the margins on the right and on the left are all flush. That means they're justified. If you do word processing and you type in something on your word processor and then you blacken it in, go to the top and hit the justify button, what's going to happen is that the margins are all going to line up. That's what it means to be justified in God's sight. It means to be lined up with God. And if we're not lined up with God, we cannot be saved. So the big question is, how do I get there? How do I get lined up with God? And Paul's argument throughout this epistle to the Romans is that you do not get lined up with God. You do not come into a right relationship with God by any human means whatsoever, by any human effort. You do not do it by works of the law. It is by grace alone. And Paul is going to hammer on this theme throughout the epistle to the Romans, and indeed he has already done so. He starts off in Romans chapter 1 saying that we're under the judgment of God, we're under the wrath of God because we've suppressed the truth about God, but God has made known to us a righteousness apart from the law, a means of coming into a right relationship with God, being lined up with God, justified with God, that is apart from the law. Now that's what the epistle to the Romans is all about. Which means that up to this point, when Paul talks about the law, he talks about the law largely in negative terms. He talks about what the law does and cannot do for any of us. So he talks about it, for the most part, in pejorative terms. For example, in Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about the fact that the real purpose of the law is pedagogical. That is to say, it serves as a schoolmaster. Its job is to reveal sin, not to prevent it. Most of us think that the Ten Commandments have been given so we know what not to do. And Paul says, actually, that's not the primary function of the law, to prevent sin. He says the primary function of the law is to reveal sin. Why? He says because the law was given after the transgression has already taken place. Now, if you're a parent, you know how this is. You have two children. They're fighting with each other. One hits the other one or trips the other one as he's walking through the room. I had, we had four children, our two oldest boys. They were constantly fighting with each other, battling with each other, as boys will inevitably do. They're very close to each other, but, you know, boys will be boys. And I remember on one occasion sitting in the library, and one brother was sitting in on the sofa, and the other brother was walking through the room, and for no apparent reason that I could tell, he simply stuck out his foot and tripped his brother, who face-planted right in front of me. And what was the first thing I said? I said, Jeffrey, don't trip your brother. Now, if you want to translate that into biblical terms, thou shalt not trip thy brother. I gave the law in the same way that Moses gave the law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But the problem is I gave the law to my son, but what did the law do? Did it prevent him from doing it? No, he'd already done it. The only thing the law do, did was reveal his guilt. Now, think about Moses getting the law on Mount Sinai. He comes down, the first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods but me. And what does he find the people doing? Worshipping the golden calf. 
Well, the law did not prevent them from sinning. It simply revealed the fact that they had already done it. ...of the law. It's negative, not positive. It reveals our sin. It doesn't prevent it. Second thing that the law does, and again, Paul's speaking in the negative, once the law reveals the fact that we have violated God's commandment, it brings condemnation. Because we all recognize that the consequences for sin are what? Death. So when the law is given, it reveals a person's sin. Second of all, it reveals the fact that they are now under condemnation, under judgment, under wrath for what they have done. And that's the third thing that it does. It brings not only condemnation in the sense of a legal sentence, but the carrying out of that sentence. Punishment, wrath, the consequence of which is spiritual, moral, and physical death. Not only that, but this is interesting. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, says that sin was actually added to show how terrible sin can really be. He says it actually adds to the trespass. It actually produces sin. The law actually has a tendency to produce sin in our lives. And we'll talk more about that as we go on. And finally, in Romans chapter 6, Paul makes it very clear, it is for this reason that you and I, if we are going to be saved, cannot be under law. We must be under grace. Now, this prompted a question in Paul's original audience. Remember, Paul is out there preaching uh, to a mixed congregation for the most part. We all know that Paul functioned primarily in the Greco-Roman world. This epistle to the Romans was written to a church that was made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. All right? So Paul is writing to Gentiles and Jews who are believers in Jesus Christ. And on the part of the Jewish Christians, this raises a serious question. All right, Paul, the, the law has this pedagogical function. It reveals our sin. It condemns us. It provokes sin in our lives. I mean, all you have to do is to tell somebody, don't do that. And what's the one thing they want to do? The very thing you've told them not to do. That's how sin works. That's how the law works, Paul says. Well, if you're a Jew, you're thinking to yourself, but wait a minute, Paul, the law is, you're describing the law as being a negative thing. But aren't we taught in God's word that the law is a wonderful thing? That the law is a blessed thing, that we should delight in the law of the Lord. That was the question that was provoked in the minds of Paul's listeners. Uh, keep your finger there in Romans for just a minute and Put yourself in the place of devout Jews in the first century, Jewish converts to Christianity. They now know that they cannot be saved by any human works. They are saved only by God's grace. But they're asking the question, well, then does the law have any value at all? What is the purpose of the law? The way Paul describes it, the law is all negative. So take a look at Psalm 19 for just a minute. Psalms is an easy book to find. All you have to do is go to the center of your Bible. You're probably going to close it up, just open it up to the center, and you're probably going to hit Psalms or Proverbs. If you hit Proverbs, go to the left. So Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Let's just take a look at what the psalmist says about the law of the Lord. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is true, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Paul says the only thing the law does is condemn you, remind you that you're a sinner, reveal your transgressions. But the psalmist says the law of the Lord is a delight. Turn to your right to Psalm 119. For just a minute. 
And again, the psalmist has something to say about the law. Psalm 119, beginning at the first verse. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no run wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. If you're a Jewish Christian in the first century and you're listening to what Paul is saying, and Paul is saying that the law cannot save you, the only thing the law does is reveal your sin, the only thing the law does is bring condemnation, as a Jew you're thinking to yourself, well now Paul, how can you say that? Because the Old Testament teaches us that the law of God is something that we should keep diligently. It is something that we should delight in. It shouldn't be something that we regard as onerous. It should be a blessing. So in the first century, Paul was charged with what is known as antinomianism. Paul was charged with being an antinomian. What that means is someone who is against the law, anti, against, nomos, the law. Paul, you're somebody against the law. What you're basically saying is the law doesn't matter, how you live doesn't matter because you're saved by grace, therefore, go ahead and live any way you want. That was the charge that was brought against Paul. Now, why is this important for you and for me? It's important for you and me because that is precisely the attitude of many people today. That that is precisely the attitude of the new morality that was introduced in the 1960s and has taken hold in American society right down to the present day. And it really doesn't matter if you're saved by grace. As you've heard me say before, you could live like hell. Now that was the charge that was brought against Paul. And it's, 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 hard, it's not hard to understand why that charge was brought against him in light of everything that he said up to this point. And that's why the seventh chapter of Romans was written. It is Paul's response to that charge. Notice how he begins this chapter. He begins it with a series of rhetorical questions. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Or look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Paul knows the challenges that are being presented to him. He he knows what people are thinking. And what he's going to do here in Romans chapter 7 is he is going to answer those charges. The charges that he is saying that the law is of no value, no consequence, the charge that Paul is an antinomian, that if you're saved by grace, it doesn't matter how you live. So, two things in particular that people are saying about Paul. Number one is that a doctrine about grace, a doctrine that emphasizes salvation by grace apart from the works of the law, this is inevitably going to lead to immoral behavior. Now, there is a sense in which Paul has already addressed this in Romans chapter 6. I know it's been some time, but if you have any questions, go back and read Romans chapter 6. And as I've said so many times before, and you must remember this, there were no chapter divisions when the Bible was originally written. Those chapter divisions appeared centuries later in the Middle Ages by the monks who were transcribing all of this in an effort to help us better read the Bible and inwardly digest and memorize the Bible. They found it easier if you could break it up into chunks. Now, if you've ever had to memorize long speeches or pieces of literature, you know that that's the way to memorize. You have to break things up. and So that's what the monks were doing. But what you'll notice as you look at the beginning of Romans chapter 7 is that it really is a continuation of what Paul has just said. Look at how the first verse begins. Paul begins, or do you not know, brothers? Well, what is he talking about there? Just what he had ended with in Romans chapter 6. 
So Paul answers, in some sense, that first charge that a doctrine of salvation by grace apart from the works of the law leads to immoral behavior. Paul says that's not true because you are united with Christ. That's the essence of salvation. You have union with him, and if your life is hidden in him, you will not live your own way. You'll live in a Christ-like manner. That's the first charge. But the second charge that was raised against Paul was then, okay, well and good, but then really the law doesn't have any value at all. The law itself might as well be discarded. doesn't mean that we're going to live immoral lives because we're united with Christ, but the law itself doesn't serve any function then for those who are already believers. It may reveal their sin, but after they become Christians, the law has no function, no value whatsoever. And that is the response that Paul is going to make. That he's going to respond to that charge in particular in the section that we have before us. First thing he does is he provides an illustration. Let's take a look at it. It's a little confusing, as I said, but it's a powerful illustration. He says, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul makes, in many respects, just a simple statement. Everybody in his audience would have understood what he was talking about. A woman's married to a man, and according to the standards of that day, there was no such thing as no-fault divorce. All right? So you're married to a man, and as long as a woman is married, he's, he's alive, she has to remain loyal to him. Now, women... I'm sorry to say, in the first century, did not have many of the rights and privileges that women have today. Um, it, would be, it was very difficult in first century Jewish or Greco-Roman culture, for that matter, for a woman to initiate divorce proceedings. It was not hard for a man. Uh, Moses said that the only thing that a man had to do is write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. And it was a great debate in Jesus' day. You'll recall that this was one of the questions that the Pharisees brought to him. Is it right to divorce a woman for any reason? Because there were two schools of thought. There was a, a, a very conservative school of thought, and there was a very liberal, radical school of thought when it came to divorce in first century Jewish society. One view was that uh, a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. Let's say she burned his dinner. All he had to do was write her a certificate of divorce and send her on his way. The more conservative view was that no, a man could not divorce his wife except in the case of an impediment, some sort of unfaithfulness, adultery or something like that, in which case the man had the right to divorce his wife. But what's interesting is that the, de the debate never had to do with under what conditions could a woman divorce her husband. All right. Now, what we're going to see is that Jesus takes things even further than what the rabbis were prepared to do. But that's, that's a topic for another occasion. What I want you to understand simply is that in that context, Paul's analogy would have been readily understood, that we are bound to the law as long as we are alive, so to speak, in the same way that a woman is bound to her husband. That, that, that's the point that Paul is making here. And he says, but if her husband dies, she's free. Now, we know this to be true. April 15th is coming up. What's April 15th? What's the significance of April 15th? Taxes. How many of you pay taxes? Uh, some of you didn't raise your hand. I hope the IRS isn't listening in on this, but... <laughs> We all pay taxes, but when a person dies, the IRS can try to collect, but is that person going to be paying their taxes? No, because why? They have died, so they are no longer bound. That's what Paul is saying. Now, that's, that's the illustration that he is using here. Now, as I said, it becomes a little confusing because in this illustration, it sounds like the man is the law, and it's the man who dies, and she is liberated to marry another. 
but we all know that the law does not die. So what in the world is Paul doing here? Well, understand that Paul is providing us with an illustration. It is, in one sense, an imperfect illustration. Now, somebody might raise an eyebrow and say, is he saying that Paul did something imperfect? Is Paul doing something that's an imperfect teaching? I say it's imperfect because it's not really intended to be an allegory. It's simply an analogy. It's simply an illustration. Paul doesn't want us to make a strict comparison. He's not saying the man represents the law and the law dies and therefore the woman is free to marry Christ. That, that's not what he's saying. He's simply making the point that we all understand that in the first century when a woman is married to her husband, she's bound to him as long as he is living. But when death comes in, the opportunity for a new relationship is born. Paul is saying there is a sense in which that is true for us. We are bound to the law until we die. We die. Die to self. And then we can be united to Christ. So it's not a strict allegory. You know, sometimes that's what we want to do. We want to make that that, that, that strict comparison, and we miss the forest for the trees. You know, you could do this with Jesus' parables. Uh, I remember a man once wanting to know what was the significance of the pigs in the story of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. I remember saying, there's no significance. I mean, if you're trying to figure out what, what variety of pig it is, you've missed the point of the story. Well, don't miss the point of what Paul is saying here, all right? Don't miss the point of what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that the man represents the law. And he's not even saying that the man represents you and me. He's simply saying that we are bound in a relationship so long as both parties are alive. But if one party dies, there's the opportunity for a new relationship. Now, as I said, it's somewhat convoluted, and someone might ask the question, well, if it's so convoluted, why does Paul use the illustration at all? Might have been better if he'd never used the illustration in the first place. Well, we might think so, but I think there are four good reasons why Paul uses this particular illustration of marriage and the law. Let me suggest them to you. First of all, as I've already said, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, and she is under his authority. This is Paul's way of reminding us that you and I are under the law of God. The law of God and the law of nature. And I say the law of God and the law of nature. What I mean by that is not the laws of gravity or anything like that, but for example, even if you've never received the Ten Commandments, even if you've never heard of the Ten Commandments, Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, you still nevertheless are without excuse in terms of your belief in God because God has revealed himself in the created order. C.S. Lewis talks about this. Brian's not in here, I don't think, today. But C.S. Lewis talks about this in the first chapter of um, Mere Christianity where he mentions the fact that there is a morality that is written into the human heart. He says, even in the most primitive societies, there is this idea of right and wrong, of what is fair and what is unfair. He said, you can have two children who've never heard of the Ten Commandments, and they're sitting there, and one is eating an orange, and the other one is not, and the first one turns to the second one and says, give me a piece of your orange. Why? Because I gave you a piece of mine. Now, what is that child doing but appealing to some sort of standard of right and wrong, some sort of morality? And Lewis asks the question, where does that morality come from? He said it's written into our hearts. So when Paul uses this analogy, he's simply reminding us that we all understand that there is a standard. And we all, no matter how hard we may try, live under that standard. Furthermore, Paul is saying, this is a lifelong subjection. It's a lifelong subjection. Just as in the first century, a woman was subject to her husband for the entirety of his 
or her life. However, Paul is making the point there is a chance of entering another relationship if the spouse dies. And of course, this is his primary point. And again, let me emphasize, this is not an allegory. It's simply an analogy. In this case, it's not the husband that dies. The wife has to die. Die to self. Die to our own desires, our own dreams, and subject all things to Christ, in which case we are, he says, reborn into a new relationship. That's Paul's point. And what is the purpose of this new relationship? Paul says it is that we might bear fruit. Look at verse 5 of chapter 7. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let me make this as simple as I possibly can. What Paul is saying is, you and I all live under the law. And none of us is capable of fulfilling the demands of the law. And the only way for us to be saved is to die to self. And when we die, we have the opportunity of engaging in a new relationship, and that is a new relationship with Christ. And that doesn't mean that we live any way we want. We now live a Christ-like life, a fruitful life. But it is no longer us doing it. It is Christ working in and through us. That's the point of the analogy there at the beginning of Romans chapter 7. And Paul is saying that must happen to every single one of us. That must happen to every single one of us. Now, Paul is a very rational individual. He was trained as a Pharisee's as a Pharisee, the Pharisees were the experts in the law, and like a good lawyer, Paul can anticipate what the objection is going to be automatically. And so if you look at verse 7, he anticipates what people are going to say after he has made this argument. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. In other words, somebody's going to say, okay, Paul, I get it. We've got to, we've got to die to, the, to ourselves. We've got to die to the law and be reborn in Christ. But what you're really saying then is that the law is sinful. And Paul says that is not the case at all. That's not what I'm saying. And he goes on to clarify what he actually is saying. First thing he says, this again is a repeat of the argument. Tell him what you want to tell him. Tell him again and then tell him what you told him. That's, that's Paul's attitude. First of all, he says, the purpose of the law is that it reveals sin to be sin. Until the law is given, we don't even know what sin is. What is sin? Anybody have a definition of sin? I'm going to give you a... Go ahead, Martha. What's sin? Right. That is a good description of what sin is like. But what is the nature of sin? What, what, if somebody says, what is sin? Missing the mark. Well, somebody might say, well, okay, it's missing the mark. But what is the mark? I'm going to give you a... That's closer to... I'm going to give you a very simple definition of sin, all right? Write this down. This is sin. It's doing anything that God forbids, and it's failing to do anything that God requires. That's sin, all right? It's doing anything that God forbids, and it's failing to do anything that God requires. All right? So God sets the standard. So, yes, 
missing the mark is a good description of what happens when we sin. But sin itself is simply doing anything that God forbids or failing to do anything that God requires. Why? Because God is the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. It's not the government, you'll be glad, happy to hear. It is God. So what the law does, Paul says, is it reveals God's plan, God's purposes, God's designs, God's standard. That's what the law does. First thing it does is it reveals sin to be sin. We now know that to worship any other God besides God is a sin. Why? Because he said so. He set that standard. That's what the law does. We now know that it is a sin to covet. Why? Because God said, you shall not covet. That's what Paul is saying here. So that's what the law does. The law does have a good function. It reveals God's purpose, God's plan, and his will for your life and for mine. So the law has that good function. Second thing he says that law does is that law has a tendency to show our true nature. It actually provokes sin within us. This is one of the reasons why I love the confession of sin, the one that we use on Sunday, the right one. Because we've talked about this before. We acknowledge and bewail our what? Our manifold sins and our wickedness. Now that's important that you have both of those things, because many people think that we're wicked because we sin. But that's not the biblical understanding of it at all. The biblical understanding is that we sin because we're wicked. All right? We're not wicked because we sin. We sin because we're wicked. It has to do with our nature, who we are by nature. We are all O.S. Positive. And so what the law does is it not only reveals God's plan and his purposes and what sin is, it also reveals our true nature to be wicked. Now, how does it do that? Well, just think for a moment about Genesis chapter 2, where God lays down the law and says, Thou shalt not eat of this tree in the midst of the garden. You've got all of these trees you can eat from, have at it, but there's one that you cannot eat of. And what does that do in the heart of Adam and Eve? That's the one they want to eat. That's the only one they want to eat at that point. Now, I'll give you a little parable. I call this the parable of the red hot. It comes from my own life. My mother is sitting out here. Maybe she remembers this incident, but I'll never forget it. Um, I've maybe told it before. My brother and I were young. It was Valentine's Day. We were really just small kids at the time. And my mother was making cupcakes for Valentine's Day for us. And she had these little red hot candies, those little cinnamon candies called red hots. And she was sprinkling them on the top of the cupcakes. And for whatever reason, Mom, you'll have to explain it to me at some point, but for whatever reason, she said, now whatever you do, don't stick those red hots up your nose. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. At no point did it ever even occur to me to stick a red hot up my nose. It wasn't even on the radar. And I was not about to stick a red hot up my nose, but my brother. I said, why doesn't she want us to stick a red hot up our nose? And he said, I, I, I don't know. And he said, I I'm going to stick a red hot up my nose. And he sure did. He took one of those red hots and stuffed it up his nose. And, of course, you know, it's cinnamon. It burned. He started to cry and all of that. And, you know, my mother said, what's wrong with him? I said, he stuck a red hot up his nose. Well, why did he do that? I told him not to do that. That is exactly how sin works. That is exactly how the law works. Thou shalt not stick the red hot up thy nose. That's the only thing we want to do at that point. And you know that's true in your own life. You tell your child at prom time, you can go here, 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 and here, but you cannot go to that place. And that's the one place they want to go. How many of you can relate to that? That's how the law works, Paul says. It, it reveals what sin really is. 
It tells us what God forbids and what God demands. And on the other hand, it also reveals the nature within the sinner, their wickedness. Here's something else. The law, he says, creates within us a desire to sin in ways that we have never thought of before. Thomas Cramner once said, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. You know, if you really have a desire for something and you cannot easily obtain it, and you are obsessed with it, you will conspire. You will ponder, you will think, you will create some way of attaining what you want. How many of us have ever done that in our own lives? That is exactly what the law does. That is exactly what the law does. It will create in us, because we are creative individuals, this desire to fulfill our sinful needs, whatever it is, by whatever means necessary. Thomas Cranmer said, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind will justify. So what does the law do? It shows us what sin really is. It shows us what God wants and how we fall short of that mark. It reveals or provokes sin within us. Thou shalt not do, and that's the one thing we want to do. And it creates a desire within us to sin in ways that we had not before even considered. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that's true for all of us. And that's why Paul comes to the end of the chapter and he's at the end of himself and he said, who then shall deliver me from this body of death? So Paul says that's the fourth thing that the law does. The law brings us to the end of ourselves. It brings us to the end of ourselves and makes us realize what we really are and how we really need Christ. Um, I'm probably not going to get to this. Maybe I will. Let's just see. I was going to use an illustration, but I think I'll hold it for just a moment. That's why somebody asked the question, what then, shall we say, is the law sin sinful, Paul? And Paul responds, no, it's not. The law is not sinful. The law does all of these things. The law drives you to Christ. Think of it in terms of a mirror. All right, a mirror. A mirror can reveal to you that your face is dirty, can it? But can the mirror clean your face? What can the mirror do? The only thing it can do is show you how dirty you are and then drive you to the soap and water. That is what the law is intended to do. The law, the keeping of the law, will never clean you. The only thing the law is going to do is reveal to you how broken and sinful and corrupt you are, and then it will drive you to the one who is the soap and the water. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's what the law is intended to do. So the law, Paul says, is not sinful, but, but sin and the author of sin, Satan, will take advantage of the law and use it for wicked and evil purposes. And let me just give you a couple of suggestions as to how Satan or sin itself uses the law for even more sinful purposes. First of all, Satan will tell you that if you focus on the law to the exclusion of all else, what only matters is how you live outwardly. It only matters how you live outwardly. 
Think about that. That's exactly what Paul thought about his own life. He said, in terms of ritualistic righteousness, I was faultless before the law. I mean, if it's all about keeping the law, you think to yourself, I'm pretty good. I haven't committed adultery. Right? I haven't lied, or if I have, it's only little white lies. I haven't stolen. I haven't coveted. You look at yourself and you say to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm not that bad. But that's one of the reasons why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, it's not just what we do outwardly, it's what's going on inwardly. Jesus said, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. And that, that goes both ways, by the way. So if I were to ask the question, how many adulterers do we have out there today? I think every single, well, thank you for being honest. Um, we've all done, how in the world can you walk up King Street past Victoria's Secret? I mean, you know, I mean, Jesus says if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And we think to ourselves, well, I'll risk one eye. I mean, that's the way we operate. But you see, if you focus only on the law, that's what sin does. The sin says, well, you're keeping the law. You're doing a good job, and therefore that's all that is necessary. Here's another way that Satan and sin corrupts the goodness of the law. It sometimes changes its tactics and says, well, you've tried to keep the law, and you haven't been able to do it, so you might as well just throw in the towel and go ahead and live life to the full. And there are many people who have done that as well. third thing that it does is it says, well, if you're not saved by the law and you're saved by grace, you might as well continue to sin so that grace may abound all the more. I knew a woman who once said to me, you've got to understand, I'm a grace junkie. And what she meant is, I'm just going to do whatever I want and just trust in God's grace. Another way that Satan and sin works on the law and distorts what is good for evil is that it makes us angry at God. We say to ourselves, well, why does God have all these rules and regulations? If he loved us, he'd just want us to be happy. You ever thought that? You ever thought to yourself, well, if God really loved me, he'd just want me to be happy. Don't I have a right to be happy? That's drilled into us as Americans. We have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. And if I'm not happy, I owe it to myself to become happy. Here's a revelation to you. God is not concerned with your happiness. He is deeply concerned with your holiness. Sin makes us think that the law is unreasonable and unjust. Well, nobody can reach that standard. That's just not fair. It makes us think that we are, makes many people think that they are more highly of themselves than they ought to think of themselves. You know, there are some people that believe they are above the law. Washington's filled with such people. Sin can distort the law by making us think that the law is oppressive, that it's holding us back from our full potential. Sin can make righteousness look drab and dreary. And finally, sin can make us disregard the consequences of the law. What was it when God told Adam and Eve back in Genesis that they should not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, what was it that the serpent whispered in their ears? God said, if you eat of that tree, you will what? You will surely die. But the serpent whispered in their ears, ah, but you will not die. You will be like God. See, that is what happens with sin. Sin distorts the law. The law has a good function. The law is to reveal who we really are, how corrupt we really are. But it's not meant to drive us to despair. It's meant to drive us to the soap and water. It's meant to drive us to the Savior. But what Satan will do, what sin will do, is it will take the law and turn it on us and make it corrupt and make it something that we regard as onerous. 
So let me just wrap up very quickly with just a few parting thoughts. Paul says the law does have a good function, but it's not the function that we think. It's not to prevent us from sinning. It is to reveal our sin. It reminds us that no one can earn God's favor, and the good news is no one has to. It awakens us to our true nature, what we really are. Professor John Gerstner was professor of theology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and really one of the great Christian thinkers, I think, of the latter part of the 20th century. And he had just delivered a lecture on this section of Romans chapter 7 talking about the purpose of the law is to reveal our true nature, our manifold sins and our wickedness. And after he was finishing the lecture, a lady came up to him and she was holding her index finger and her thumb about a half an inch apart and she said, you know, Dr. Gerstner, you make me feel this big. And without missing a beat, Gerstner looked at her and he said, Madam, that's too big. <laughs> he said, do you realize that if you think that much of yourself, it'll take you all the way to hell? See, that's what the law is designed to do. The law is designed to reveal what God's standard is. Things we are meant to do, the things we are not to do. It reveals the fact that those are the very things we do. The very things we hate are the things we do. The very things that we should be doing we don't do. It reveals the fact that we are wretched creatures. And that there is no limit to how far we will go to get our own way. And yet it reveals to us also that there is no limit to how far God will go to redeem us, to bring us into a relationship with him, and to make us new creatures who are no longer interested in living only for themselves, but interested in living for him. In a service which is perfect freedom. Paul thought that he was living before he met Jesus Christ but he wasn't. He recognized he was only existing, fearing God, not loving God. And maybe that's the way it is with you today. Maybe you've been trying to keep the law, live the good kind of life, be the respectable, upstanding citizen, and what you've done is you have feared God your whole life, fearful that if you miss the mark, if you fall short, he's going to get you. And what Paul wants you to understand is you've already missed the mark. You'll never be able to earn God's favor. How good do you have to be in order to earn God's favor, in order to get into heaven? Jesus tells us, he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You don't have to be as good as Bill Warlick or as good as Jeff Miller or as good as Bill Christian. You, if you want to get into heaven, have to be as good as God. And here's the problem. It's not just as good as God from this point forward. You have to be as good as God from the beginning. And who among us has done it? And yet the wonderful message of the gospel is that even though when we see ourselves that way, we begin to realize there is a God who loves us. Not because we're lovable, but in spite of the fact that we're unlovable. And I'll be honest with you folks, that's what we all want. Every single one of us, and I've said this to you before, every single one of us wants to be fully known with all our faults, all our blemishes, and yet fully loved. The reason why we all have secrets and we're fearful of sharing those secrets with other people is because we're afraid that if we really tell them what we really think, what we really dream about, what we really desire, all those things that go on in our minds when nobody else is thinking, we think that if they were to know that, even those closest to us, they would think less of us. That's why people keep secrets. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ knows everything you've ever thought. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows how far you are willing to go to get what you want. And he loves you in spite of it all. So much so that he went to the cross and paid in full the price for your sin. Your sins past, your sins present, and whatever sins you will commit in the future, he has paid it all 
that you might be united to him, that you might die to sin, die to the law, and be born into a new relationship where there's no more fear. There's only love, grace, and the chance to live a righteous life. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for Romans chapter 7. This is a dense subject. Sometimes we just think of the law in terms of just the Ten Commandments. And the law is given to tell us what not to do. But Paul says the law is meant for so much more. It's to reveal our true nature, who we really are. And, and to reveal, really, the depths of our own sin and depravities. Lord, we, we don't even realize what we're capable of. But the law reveals that in us. It shows us that we're all capable of the worst possible things imaginable, and yet there is nothing that can in any way pry us loose from the grip of your grace or your love or your mercy. So, Father, as we leave today, grant us the grace to see ourselves as we really are, to see our true sins and to see our wickedness, but not to despair, but to recognize that there is one who comes who loves us, and has paid the price that we might forever be justified in your sight and live with you for all eternity. We ask this in his name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.